Did you enjoy the party? Sure, sure. The prettiest sight in this fine, pretty world is the privileged class enjoying its privileges. You're a snob, Connor. No doubt, no doubt. A wash with champagne was Will Q. Tracy's pleasure dome on the nuptial eve of Tracy Samantha. Tracy, we. Tracy Samantha. Tracy. You can't marry that guy. George, I'm going to. Why, why not? Well, I don't know. I thought I'd be for it at first, but you just don't seem to match up. Then they're false with me. Well, maybe so, but all the same, now, you can't do it. No. No. Come around about noon tomorrow. I mean today. Hello again. Welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And before we get to uh, the main film of discussion today, which is uh, the Philadelphia story, uh, we, we have to introduce a guest. It's been a while since we've had a guest. Um, and our guest this week is Zita Short. Zita, how are you? Oh, I'm very well today. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's quite all right. My, my, my youngest passed out and my oldest is busying herself upstairs. So I am, I am okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, all right, so uh, as we always do at the top of the show, we are going to uh, give you all, our listeners, some recommendations this week. Zita, as our guest, would you like to lead us off? Well, I have a recommendation. Unfortunately, it's not really related to the film that we're discussing, but it is a romantic movie, and it's Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, which I think is just so beautiful. I always mistake it for a Powerland Pressburger film because... It has so many of the elements of one of their movies where it deals with mysticism and spirituality and it's just extravagant. And I think the biggest similarity is that Jack Cardiff worked as the cinematographer on a lot of Powland Pressburger movies and this film. And personally, this is definitely a hot take, but I think it was probably his best piece of work. He did so much wonderful stuff back in the 1940s, but the visuals are just dazzling in Pandora and the Flying Dutchman and you have Ava Gardner and James Mason at the height of their beauty and the story itself might be the least interesting part of it it is sort of romantic twaddle but I think the screenwriters were really aware of that and they put a lot of the emphasis on the visuals again but then also just the abstract ideas that they're trying to deal with amidst this story that's a bit trashy in a way it's really wonderful and i think it's a great example of what could be achieved in 1950s hollywood before things started to get really cheap and tacky and trashy as they became desperate to get people into the cinemas and away from their televisions ian have you seen this movie I haven't, but uh, I believe it is in the Thousand and One, and uh, I, I love hearing that you think it's Jack Cardiff's best work because that's 
high praise indeed when you look at his entire career. Adam and I are both huge fans of A Matter of Life and Death, and I, I still have yet to see The Red Shoes, but I'm very excited to see that. Yeah, that's. Uh, I I would love to possibly cue that up for, for season four, as that is uh, uh, something I have been uh, putting off watching, uh, because I feel like, I know it's in the book, and I, I just want to save a, you know, if I'm going to watch it, I want to watch it and take notes and, and really dive into it. And I'm a huge James Mason fan, so I mean, it's I'm. It sounds like it's going to tick all the boxes for me. Hopefully, yes, yeah. Well, lovely, lovely. Thank you, um, boy. I got to tell you, mine uh, is also <laughs> mine is nowhere near related to Philadelphia story. I uh, this is a, this was a rather busy week for me, and uh, I wasn't even sure necessarily what my recommend was going to be. Except I watched something today, um, and I don't even know really how I stumbled upon it. Um, but I watched, um, Ian last, uh, last season, we, we, uh, discussed a Takashi Miike film, uh, audition. Um, but I watched something by him today that is wildly different, uh, but just as, uh, as, uh, uh, violent in a way. And I watched 13 assassins. Have you seen 13 assassins? I haven't, but I believe on that episode, uh, Brittany did recommend that one very highly. Yeah. So, uh, 13 Assassins, in, in a very real way, is is like Takashi Miike kind of riffing on Seven Samurai. Um, there is uh, the, the half-brother of a, of a shogun is sort of uh, taking way too much power into his hands, and he's ruthless, and he's merciless, and he's killing and torturing people. And uh, somebody from, like, within higher up basically gives an order to this um, the samurai warrior to round up a crew of people and and kill him before he reaches this city because if he reaches the city he's going to join this council and he'll cause real real havoc and like it's in terms of its story it's really simple and it's it's like seven samurai in that way where you know they got to round up the troops everybody's kind of got their own backstory i mean there's even like a uh, kukachio character in this one who's kind of peasant like and he's not he's not a samurai but he gets to join the crew anyway um but the 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 visuals are really good, are really really good. And I, I saw this on Hulu, and I thought the the quality was was excellent. The last thirty minutes of the film is one extended fight scene with really crazy. Um, I, I don't want to say contraptions, but the way that they sort of rig this town, they sort of booby trap this town to also help because it ends up being thirteen of these thirteen assassins against about two hundred people, and. You hear those numbers and you go, that doesn't sound like good odds. But when you see kind of what they do and how they battle, it's it's really kind of ingenious. And um, I, I get it's not you're not you don't have to overthink it in any way. But the visuals are so good. It's and it's very it is very violent. I mean, I can't can't sidestep the sheer amount of violence in this movie. But it's still a weird thing to say how how beautiful it is too. the way it is shot. I. Takashi Miike, I, I, I'm gonna start. I gotta, I'm gonna start really uh, checking more of his stuff out because I, I, I liked Audition, didn't love it. I, I like this one more. Oh, exciting! And I hear uh, what, what was the other one she recommended? I think it was Ichi the Killer. Yes, yeah, which is the one I yeah. think we both wanted to get to before that episode. Yeah, yeah. Exciting, Zeta, man. Zeta, any chance that you've seen Thirteen Assassins? No, unfortunately not. I wasn't even aware of it before you brought it up. And this is just me being terrible when it comes to following international cinema or foreign films. I just struggle to keep up. I know French and Spanish cinema a bit, but that's the most baseline level of 
competence or awareness. So I really need to expand my knowledge in that area. So I might seek it out. Well, and, uh, thank you. I, we won't do it yet, but that's a, there's a good slight tease for next week's episode as it is, it is a foreign film uh, and, and that'll expand uh, what, what we're trying to cover on the show too. Uh, so yeah, so, so my recommendation this week has no ties to the Philadelphia story, but uh, 13 Assassins, that's my recommendation. Ian, I, I understand that yours might be closer to what we're talking about today. Well, I think mine is the film that prevented Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy from being in the Philadelphia story. I know that uh, doing the research on this film that uh, Catherine Hepburn had sort of somewhat creative control over who was going to produce it, direct it, star in it, write it, all that. Uh, and uh, she originally wanted Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy. So the film, I when I read that, I was like, well, let me take a look around 1940 and see what those guys were doing. And turns out they were doing a, well, I shouldn't say a little film. It's a huge film. Uh, called Boomtown, uh, directed by Jack Conway, also came out in 1940. Uh, it's got Clark Gable, as I mentioned, Spencer Tracy. Uh, it's the second uh, two collaborations between Gable and uh, Claudette Colbert after It Happened One Night, which we covered on this show. Mm-hmm. It's also got a great performance from Hedy Lamarr. She's got above the title billing, though she doesn't appear until almost an hour into the movie. And then you've also got a guy that I know that both Adam and I appreciate, Frank Morgan, who most people will know as the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. So it's two guys, 1918 Texas. They're both wildcatters. They're oil prospectors. And uh, you see the sort of ups and downs of their relationship. They strike it rich. They lose it all. Um, And then uh, the Claudette Colbert character comes in and sort of gums up the works a little bit because she uh, is Spencer Tracy's character. He's very much in love with her. But after a a wild night of passion, uh, her and Clark Gable end up getting married after only knowing each other for a few hours. So that sort of drives a wedge between the Tracy and Gable characters. And there's some some great montage work in this film. As I said, it takes place over several years, about a decade or so, as you watch these men go from rags to riches and back and forwards quite a few times and to the point where Gable is uh, at the top of his at the top of his craft he's a leader in his field he's actually now moving not out of being an oil prospector and into the refinery game and he's got huge factories and the Hedy Lamar character comes in and uh, Spencer Tracy is obviously quite uh, he's he's very suspicious of her and the relationship that she has with Gable because he is still very much in love with Claudette Colbert and so he hatches this plan to sort of bring Gable back down to earth uh, out of out of fear that he's going to destroy his relationship with Claudette Colbert. I, I recommended another film uh, on this show, I believe, last season called San Francisco, yep. which also had Gable and, and Spencer Tracy in it. And like this movie, it also has some incredible effects work, which I, I think still hold up considering it's almost 80 years later, or more than 80 years later, rather. Uh, I quite like the relationship between Gable and Tracy. I think Spencer Tracy, in the few films that I've seen him in, kind of had a tendency to underplay his characters, but I think he makes a very good straight man to to Gable being the the scenery-chewing type of guy that he was, and there is one of the all-time great golden age of Hollywood fights between the fist fights between these guys. I mean, it's got all the trappings that you would expect of, of 
of the era where it's all some of it's sped up and some of the editing's a little choppy, but it's still a great fist fight between the two of them. And if you're a fan of it, happened one night. All the chemistry that was there between Gable and Colbert is still there, and Hedy Lamar absolutely oozes that sort of. I mean, it's it's understandable that she was the sex symbol that she was back in the day, and she is so immensely talented, and you, you just can't take your eyes off her whenever she's on screen. I was kind of blown away that it was more than an hour before she was on screen, but I mean, you can't take her eyes off her when she is. It's absolutely fabulous. It's a huge film, with a, like I said, with great special effects and some really excellent montage work. I very, very highly recommend well, awesome, and and my grandmother loves it. So there you go. You've got the you've got the Beryl Sutton seal of approval there. I, I was going to say you keep bringing on nice uh, nice family recommendations on onto the show. I believe San Francisco was another one of those, right? Yeah, it was absolutely. I mean, uh, Grandma brought me up right to appreciate the classics and Clark Gable. She's still head over heels in love with Clark Gable. Well, that sounds that sounds amazing. Again, Azita, I, I turn to you. Have you seen Boomtown? I have. Yes, and. I'll admit that I don't love it as much as it happened one night, but that might be a perfect movie in my eyes, so I think it would be difficult for any film to measure up to it. I think the big issue for me is that I seriously dislike Spencer Tracy, and just any movie that he's in, in my eyes, (laughs) becomes less enjoyable because he's there. And in researching the Philadelphia story, I became so thankful that he was not cast in it because I much prefer, well, we'll get into it, but I don't even like Cary Grant that much, which could be controversial. But if Tracy had been in there, oh, it would have been a major obstacle for me to get over. Well, let's let's just quickly to recap our recommends this week. We have uh, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, Thirteen Assassins, and Boomtown. But let's just let's just get let's just ride that wave. Let's just ride the wave into. The Philadelphia Story. Uh, this is directed by George Cukor. Um, I usually don't say who produced it, but I feel like Joseph Mankiewicz is a big enough name that we should probably say who produced the film. Um, this was written by Donald Ogden Stewart, which was based on Philip Berry's play. Um, I feel like there's so much right there with just those few names. Do we want to? Do we want to do a little a little Cukor talk now? Maybe a little Philip Berry chat. Where do you Where do you want to go? Well, he's in the book quite a few times. He, he is. Uh, let's see. George Cukor is in the book um, for uh, Camille, Gone with the Wind, Gaslight, Adam's Rib, A Star is Born, and My Fair Lady. Uh, I have only seen one of those films. <laughs> Bet you can't guess which one, huh? <laughs> This is this is where I feel like Zeta is a is a good addition to this show. She might be able to help us out with some of those movies. Yes, so I think I've seen all of the ones that you brought up. And one of the things that I love Cukor for is just his interest in women. He was known as the top woman's picture director in old Hollywood, which did cause some problems for him, especially when it came to trying to win an Academy Award, because specifically the director's branch was a bit of a boys' club, and they really wanted a director like John Ford, who made really masculine, tough movies. And so he was making these really sensitive melodramas about suffering women. And even though those might have earned acting prizes, they weren't doing that well when it came to critical respect from a certain type of man. And uh, 
I have mixed responses to some of them. I really hate Camille. I just don't like that Greta Garbo formula where she's a suffering woman who's too stupid to do anything to get out of a situation that could be easily averted. And I think that one really gives in to all of the worst tropes of her genre of film. But then you have something that I do like a bit more like Gaslight, where we'll get into it with the Philadelphia story, but he was also a master at adapting plays and books to the screen. He just seemed to have an understanding of how to keep all of the things that people like about plays where people are very verbose they're speaking in this heightened language he makes all of that understandable and believable but at the same time it's not like he's Sidney Franklin where he only has about two different camera angles that he knows how to use and often he'll just plonk the camera down and get actors to deliver an entire monologue without cutting once so he does seem to be really, really good at transitioning plays from the stage to the screen. And the Philadelphia story is probably one of his greatest achievements. So I'm glad we're talking about this one. Yeah. And I, you know, again, I, I you know, Ian and I planned the season and, and I don't even necessarily know. I think we were just trying to find something from the 40s to kind of slot in because we we had definitely have been very contemporary lately with our, our Mendez ranking and the Oscars and our Inaritu ranking. And so um, it was definitely nice to kind of come back and do something uh, from the 40s and something uh, uh, quote comedic. And we can we'll talk about that, too, I think, as we go through. Um, but yeah. Um, and then, yeah, there's there, there, you know, I don't know how much we want to talk about Philip Barry and his background. Um, I, uh, you know, apparently he was a big deal on Broadway, you know, about a show a year um, was was running on Broadway. Um, uh, I watched some of the um, the special features on the Criterion and um, somebody said that he's he's most known for writing plays about wealthy people. And then there's a whole thing about how his father wasn't wealthy and how there was this weird New York law that um, because his father died before he was born, his everything got put into a trust and he basically gave the inheritance back to his family so he could go to Yale. And there's a whole lot of a whole lot of stuff there. Um but here's the thing. Uh, Philip Berry is a forgotten playwright. N nobody nobody does this stuff anymore. And I, I think that there is a reason for it, which I will I will save for the uh, the bulk of the episode. Um, uh, Ian, any thoughts on those those just those first few names? Well, also that you mentioned uh, Mankiewicz as producer. He's also in the book several times as a director. And uh, one of those movies is something, I'll tease it, we may have coming up later in the season. Yep. I guess I'll just say it. we're going to do Guys and Dolls, which I'm very excited to revisit. I haven't seen that movie in about 12 or so years. It's been a while. I've seen, I've seen, it, I've seen it on stage more recently than I've seen it on film. So, yeah, I, I would agree. Awesome. Oh, Gene Simmons is so lovely in it. Yeah, it'll be it'll be nice to revisit because I I all I really remember is that Brando is uh, you know he's something else. Um, <laughs> so so let's talk about our cast. Uh, I'll run through some of these names here, and if I leave anybody out, you feel like deserves some love, please feel free to add them at the end. So we have uh, Cary Grant as C.K. Dexter Haven, Catherine Hepburn as Tracy Lord, James Stewart as Macaulay Mike Connor, Ruth Hussey as Elizabeth Embry, John Howard as George Kittredge, uh, Ronald Young as Uncle Willie, 
And then uh, we have John Halliday as Seth. That would be Tracy's dad. Uh, Mary Nash as Margaret. That would be Tracy's mom. Uh, Vir- and, uh, Virginia, uh, Virginia Wa- Weedler as Dinah. That would be Tracy's younger sister. Um, anybody else? Who would, who would I leave out? Who should we show some, show some love to? Well, I think Hepburn is the big one. So we should probably start off by getting into the place that this took in her career. Yeah, well, box yeah. office poison at the time. Well, and this according is, to some. Yeah, and and actually, so so if you don't if you don't mind, I want to run through a bit more of the uh, um, our accolades and stuff because we yes we're gonna Hepburn will be the first thing we really dive into because there's a I think there's a lot there so we're I want to just I want to just table that for like two minutes while we run through accolades and and reviews and stuff. Um, so at the Oscars uh, that year, it did. It won. It won. Jim James Stewart won Best Actor for some reason, um, and it also won Best Screenplay. Um, and this was a this was a year where where awards really kind of got uh, mixed around. There, Best Picture went to Rebecca, the Alfred Hitchcock film. Um, Best Director went to John Ford for The Grapes of Wrath, as well as uh, Supporting Actress went to Jane Darwell. Um, uh, Catherine Hepburn lost Best Actress to. Um, uh, uh, who it was for Kitty Foyle? Who was the actress? Ginger, uh, Ginger Rogers. Ginger Rogers. Thank you. That's right. Um, but it was you know obviously got some Academy love and lost a few. Um, uh, it was number fifty one on the AFI's top one hundred films of all time. It is now forty five on the most recent list. Hey Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes, it was in nineteen ninety five, which was a pretty interesting year for the National Film Registry. We have the blacksmith scene which we've talked a little bit about this show when we talked about shorts. Yep. Uh, from 1893, we have All the Heaven Allows. We have one of my favorite films of all time, American Graffiti, North by Northwest, we've covered on the show, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Hospital, that I saw very recently with George C. Scott, which is a, it's a lot. <laughs> and then uh, to bring it full circle to the episode that I did with Zeta, the 1920 version of Last of the Mohicans was actually included in the National Film Registry that year. Well, look at that. That's amazing. Um, this film is not currently on the IMDb 250. It does, however, have a perfect 100% critical score on Rotten Tomatoes with a 93% audience. Ian, do you, do you mind if I just take take like the, the oh. 15 seconds and do it? Yeah, please do. All right. Bosley Crowther, New York Times. A splendid <laughs> cast adorns the screen version of the Philadelphia story. Here we go. All those folks who wrote Santa Claus asking him to send them a sleek new custom-built comedy with fast lines and the very finest in Hollywood fittings got their wish just one day late with the opening of the Philadelphia store yesterday at the Music Hall. For this present, which really comes via Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, has just about everything that a blue-chip comedy should have. A witty romantic script derived by Donald Ogden Stewart out of Philip Berry's successful play, the flavor of high society elegance in which the patrons invariably luxuriate, and a splendid cast of performers headed by Catherine Hepburn, James Stewart, and Cary Grant. If it doesn't play out this year and well along into next, they should turn the music hall into a shooting gallery. <laughs> I just love reading his stuff. That's just that's just the best. Um, okay, so <clears throat> uh, I, let's just quickly. Well, do we want to do the plot first, or do we want to talk about Catherine Hepburn? I, I, what, what do you want to do? Let's. Uh, Zito Zito was ready to talk about Catherine Hepburn, so let's dive right in and let's talk about the leading lady. Yeah. <laughs> so 
I suppose we could get into the fact that this was very important in changing her fortunes and her career. She had that whole period in the mid to late 30s where she just kept appearing in flop after flop. And I think she was the target of a lot of ire because she had this contract that was very advantageous to her. And because her wealthy background was so well known, I think audiences in the 1930s had such an interesting relationship to movie stars and to the idea of glamour and wealth because we see so many of these movies where it's escapism and they want to focus on the petty problems of rich people but at the same time you read gossip rags from this time and there does seem to be this resentful attitude towards Hepburn because she was so wealthy and they take on this tone where she's the spoilt little girl who wants more power than she deserves. And you see in this movie, there are so many efforts made to address her own public image. It does feel like a meta comment on who she is because she, as a young woman, was this very wealthy socialite from Connecticut, not Philadelphia, but still she does have a similar haughty air about her. She was very close to her family members. But then, as a lot of people have pointed out, this movie makes a lot of efforts to cut her down to size and to humiliate her at a lot of points and to have her humbled. And I feel like this is a formula that she decided to just run with after this movie was a success. And it's not surprising that she wanted Spencer Tracy to be one of her leading men because, of course... Two years later, they make Woman of the Year together. They have an affair. It's a long-term relationship for them. But I do think all of those Hepburn-Tracy comedies essentially go through the Philadelphia story formula where she's this haughty, wealthy, upper-crust woman who is eventually cut down to size by salt-of-the-earth, tough-talking Spencer Tracy. And it's not a formula that I love. And it only really works for me in the Philadelphia story because she's so charming here. I think it's just a remarkable performance. And I can see why people were completely taken by her in this role. I just wish she hadn't so thoroughly taken on some of the sexist tropes that I see in this movie. Now, well, Adam and I were quite we we were quite disparaging of her when we did uh, bringing up baby last season, and I, I have to say that I was so much more enamored with her this go around. I don't know if you have a similar feeling, Adam. Um, ooh, ooh, that's good. Um, I'll be I'll I'll be the other end of this. Um, so so here's here's what I'll say. Um, this. And I, I, I really I, I scoured her IMDb because I wanted to make sure that I, I knew what I had seen. And, and it is just it's it's bringing up baby and it's the Philadelphia story, which I do not think is indicative of her career at all. So I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm my my frame of reference is is really small. Um, I did not think that she was much better in this. Um, I don't like and I've, I think there's a type of story that I don't really dig and and rich people being rich doing rich things with no repercussions i i don't i i and maybe this was something that was more um entertaining in 1940 but i just don't i don't really glom onto this kind of a story and and looking through her imdb 
there's so many there's so many movies I would rather watch of hers that just just based on what I think I know about them. Um, my favorite <laughs> my favorite Catherine Hepburn performance is her on the Dick Cavett show. Um, I watched that entire interview that was on the Criterion, and I I get why people find her fascinating. And and this was I think was the the if I could if I could say anything about my experience of watching the Philadelphia story, it's doing the research. And and listening to her talk about her career and talking about making her bo- like wanting to make her bones in the theater that it, it's true what Zita said that that she does she came from a, a fairly wealthy family but that she did like she did start in theater that she did made her bones and that she had got, she got her contract and and then she bought her contract out and that's all great but like the the stories that that I've seen her in the characters that she's played even if it is a version of herself I don't like the way it fits into the the story that's being told in the films but watching her be her talking to Dick Cavett was amazing I was I was so enamored with her I couldn't look away from the screen I literally my wife came in at one point and was about to ask me a question I literally I shushed my wife I was like wait wait shush, 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 wait 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 and then I, I was like, I had to find a good place to pause. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I want to see her. I need to see a dramatic role of hers because I'm looking, I'm looking at some of her wins. I'm looking at some of her nominations. And, and there's a lot of, there's, there's the Rainmaker and Suddenly Last Summer and Long Day's Journey and Tonight, which are all, these are, those are all plays. Those are dramatic plays. Same with The Lion in Winter. Same with On Golden Pond. Like all of those are, are dramatic plays. I would love to see her take a bite out of drama because what I've seen so far, I find repetitive and, to be honest, I, I, annoying. I don't find her charming in these movies. Well, this is this is there's a there's a point in the show where I usually ask Adam, "Do you like lists?" I I love lists, <laughs> and so uh, I won't do the full the full twenty. There was a Peter Bradshaw at the Guardian last November did a list of the twenty best Catherine Hepburn performances, and I would love for for Zeta to weigh in on this. So I will to. To sort of to not belabor the point, I'll just do the top five of the top twenty. So, at number five, they have suddenly last summer, which is one you just mentioned, Adam. How do you how do you feel about that one, Zito? Have you seen that one? Yes, I have. So I think everything in that movie pretty much gets overshadowed by the fact that there is just a bonkers twist in the plot where you go what cannibalism young spanish boys eating somebody alive it's just so bizarre it comes out of nowhere and suddenly you forget all of the things that happened during the first two acts and i think that's a problem for katherine hepburn because her character isn't really involved in that twist and she's sort of doing her thing she was definitely in her imperious grand dame mode at that point which is something that a lot of older actresses get stuck in where they go well i will show up i will do my accent and i don't have to act that hard and i did get the feeling that she was kind of relying on her presence to get her through that one i wasn't that interested in what was going on with her character and it seemed like i was just meant to be awed by the fact that she was katherine hepburn instead of <laughs> taking that much of an interest in what she was doing i wouldn't put it among her best pieces of work well i i was reading about the plot and just this whole thing where she's trying she elizabeth taylor is in it as well and there's a she's trying to have her lobotomized or something like that was i reading that right Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, that just sounded nuts to me. Yeah, they're trying to get her uh, home. No, yeah. 
Or uh, number four. Number four is The Lion in Windsor, uh, where she starred alongside Peter O'Toole, and she won Best Actress for this one. Oh my goodness. So this is one of those movies where I am just alone on an island in hating it. I just despise this film, and I think most of it is James Goldman's style of writing. It's just purple prose put into dialogue form. He thinks he's terribly witty every time somebody delivers a one-liner which is every second line in this play turns screenplay you can just feel the self-satisfied smirk that came as he wrote it down it's just horrible and i think hepburn and O'Toole very fine actors and other things but i think that script let them give in to their worst impulses and you just get the sort of scenery chewing performances that other actors seem to love and i think that's why it did so well with the academy where yes i'm sure it was fun for them to deliver it because they get to show off constantly but to watch it is painful and nothing about it is witty nothing about it is funny it's a really shallow play it doesn't seem to have much to say about its characters it's sort of like watching dynasty if it was transplanted into the British royal family. And it's just horrid. I don't really see why it has such a big fan base. Adam, do you have any familiarity with that one? Um, I mean, I, I've seen the play before. It, I mean, it's not the kind of play that I would want to do. It, it, I, I find it a bit, a bit dry. But it is, it is the kind of play that has name recognition that will, you know, every, every few years a big enough theater will revive it because it's a it's a period costume drama so well i'm i'm disappointed to hear that my boy peter o'toole performed so poorly in it <laughs> uh number three usually wonderful <laughs> yeah. uh number three and the reason why we're here the philadelphia story and we'll continue with that discussion in just in a moment number two is the african queen she nominated with the, for this one and she uh starred alongside the great humphrey bogart i i can't believe i haven't seen the african queen that's a huge gap in my classic film uh, knowledge mm. this is one of those weird ones where I feel like it's more than the sum of its parts as a film I do think it's terrifically entertaining for me it's like a perfect four star movie where I don't quite see it as the unimpeachable classic that others do but I can see why people have a great time with it and yet if you sat me down and said, oh, would you give this awards in any category for being one of the best of the year? I would say no, just because none of the individual elements really stand out to me as being exceptional. It's, everybody is on the same level of being good or even really good. And all of that comes together to make something pretty great. But at the same time, one of Hepburn's best performances, again, it would be a bit hyperbolic. I'm really hoping that... Alice Adams, which might be my favorite performance of hers, is on this list, but I'm not sure. I don't believe it was, but number one, I will say, and Adam's going to hate this oh, too, fuck, is bringing up. Me. It's bringing fuck. up, baby. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I, I never want to say bringing up, baby, ever again. It was I, genuinely I, terrible. I, would, I, I hated would, every I would minute of it. I would seriously rather pull out my own eyeballs than watch that movie again. 
And it's in the Criterion Collection. I, so what does that tell you? Yeah, well, I, that, I, apparently <laughs> we don't know what the fuck we're talking about when it comes to that movie. But I, again, I would rather, like, I would rather have, I, I don't even know. I'm looking at my dog. I would rather have my dog, like, bite me in the face than have to watch Bringing Up Baby. He wouldn't bite me in the face, but, you know. <laughs> Zeta, would you care to weigh in on Bringing Up Baby before we continue with our <laughs> Philadelphia story discussion? So that's one where I'll admit I have not seen it. It's one oh. of the classics of hers that oh. I haven't seen yet. It's that and Holiday, which is another big one. I think I'm mostly familiar with her Academy Award nominated work, her rom- her romantic comedies with Spencer Tracy and her 30s work. But I have a few blind spots in there just because she produced so much over her long career. I, I honestly don't know who was worse in that was Cary Grant or Catherine Hepburn. It's a it's a toss up. Which is which is think just think about the fact that we're saying that. Who was worse? No. Cary Grant or Catherine no. Hepburn? No, no, they're just terrible. <laughs> I, I would love to whenever you get random with Zeta, I'd love for you to come back and tell us how wrong we were. <laughs> oh, oh yes. Well, I will be reviewing it at some point, so I I hope I like it more than you do. I hope it's not as painful to watch as you say it is, but <laughs> it sounds like it could be a bit of a trying experience. And 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 I, you know, I will admit that that I've had I've for the most part I've struggled with the early comedies that we've done. Not that now now it happened when night is an outlier. It happened one night is phenomenal and and like it's a masterpiece. That's, that's a movie I can't wait to just find another reason to watch again because it's it's so good. But I, and I and I, I will I mean I will admit with both of these movies with Bringing Up Baby and with the Philadelphia Story, I really actually I had high hopes like and I don't even know why because of how bad my experience was with Bringing Up Baby I was so excited for the Philadelphia story. And I think it was, and, and Ian and I, I think we, uh, before, I don't know when this was, but we talked about maybe, maybe our boy Jimmy Stewart could sort of, you know, f- find a way to help with, with what's going on. But I got to say, so I don't, um, I don't know. We, we haven't really talked about the plot all that much, but let's, let's, I, I, I want to talk about this love, not even a, this love diamond that's happening, right? With, I, re- I called it a rhombus in my notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so re- just he- there, here's the relationships. Uh, it's related to plot, but so, so, CK and Tracy were married. We get this very short montagey thing at the beginning that shows that their relationship is not doing very well and that they're they they're separated. I'm not even sure if they if, is are they do they is it are they legally divorced? Is that a thing? In in Cary Grant's mind, I don't seem to think that he believes that they are. And that's that was okay, well, okay, that was slightly confusing, but whatever. But they so they were married, now they're separated, and now Tracy is engaged to marry uh, George Kittridge, um, and and as a way of like enacting some kind of revenge or getting close to her again. C.K. rigs up this thing where uh, Macaulay, that's the Jimmy Stewart character, and Liz, that's the Ruth Hussey character, are going to get an inside peek at this family like the weekend before the wedding. And then, of course, Jimmy Stewart starts to kind of have some feelings for for Tracy, even though he's kind of in a relationship with Liz, question mark. Um, and so that's sort of this this roller coaster of, of relationships. Um, so I, I don't even know where to start except for that. I want to ask this question. Were you, what was your, what, when, 
<laughs> when CK and Tracy actually get together at the end of it, what was your reaction? I, and I'm, I'm asking both of you, what was your reaction to that being the way that the story concluded? Well, I mostly just shrug. I think I've seen the film four times at this point, and it's always one where the highs are really high for me. I do love the scenes where James Stewart and Catherine Hepburn are flirting. I just think those are wonderful. I enjoy aspects of her performance. I think that Kuko's direction is really great in spots. And then there are just these dramatic low points where I go, oh no, oh no, this is terrible. Like the scene with Tracy's father, who was oh. just horrid. But that ending to me has always just felt like, oh, we need to wrap up the plot now. Let's just throw her together with one of the guys. And I do think that Liz does end up in that classic position in these movies where, oh, there's a love triangle, but we want a really happy ending. So this random supporting character is suddenly going to develop really serious feelings for one of the main characters so that we don't have to worry about them being alone. And I know they set up this sort of a will they, won't they between them. She's clearly more interested in him than he is in her. But it didn't really make sense that he would suddenly be so content with being with her. And then CK and Tracy, I suppose we're meant to think that they're made for each other because they're both from the same social class. As they keep pointing out, they grew up together. But I think we needed a few more scenes where they were really building that romantic chemistry between them because I never felt like there was a moment at which they seemed to be more than bickering friends. Which, th- thank you, thank you. And Ian, I want to get your thoughts on that too, but that that is, the fact that it wasn't Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn getting together at the end. I mean, I get that there was this thing that they were trying to kind of like keep Liz involved throughout, but when it ended up being Cary Grant and her walking down the aisle, I was... I mean, the only word that can come to mind is befuddled. I, I didn't understand why that was the choice they wanted to make. And then it it was like and 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 you've you've mentioned sorry, Ian, I want you to answer because I'm I'm gonna go on a different tangent here in a second. So so Ian, what about you? No, no, I'm I'm hundred percent with you there. I was like I'm I'm taking notes, I'm watching the movie. Obviously it's my first time watching. I watched the end of the movie again when I was done taking notes. I was like, did I did I miss something? The end of this movie, in my mind, is Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn getting together, I was like, what? They just pulled a complete bait and switch on me. What just happened? I feel cheated. I wrote in my notes, this is like four-fifths of a good movie until you get to that, like, tacked-together ending. Well, and then I don't... I, I, felt, I felt done over. Well, and I don't know about you, but there was something... And they... There was, there was a handful of scenes where uh, we got CK and Liz talking together, and it wasn't like they were flirty, but, like, there was a... They had, like... The, the way that both of those characters were, were more cool and collected versus like Jimmy Stewart and, and, uh, and Catherine Hepburn who were kind of playing, they had the bigger things that they were playing throughout the, the, the movie. And so like I was like Cary Grant and, and, uh, and um, uh, Ruth Hussey, I'm like, ooh, okay, maybe this is the thing where we get these two couples at the end and they, like, they've actually, through all of the shenanigans that have happened, they're going to they're gonna find who they're meant to be with. And so, yeah, when it turned out to be that that's not the way it was, I mean, I, of course, was disappointed because that's the, the story I was building up in my head. But I didn't feel 
what 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 Zeta was talking about, I didn't see this reconnection, this this like rekindling of the flames between CK and Tracy, and I was I I don't yeah, befuddled was about the uh the strongest word I could I can come up with. But but the, I wanna go back to what Zeta said about this relationship with the 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 father. We, Zeta, do you mind just like for anybody who maybe hasn't seen the movie, just maybe talking about that that one conversation that you've been hinting at a little bit. So I think we need some context. Basically, yes, yeah. the the plot does hinge on the fact that her father has been estranged from the family for quite some time. And it's definitely implied that he was having affairs, he was doing something that was untowards, and Tracy, because she's quite headstrong and independent, encouraged her mother to try to separate from the father and to try to distance herself from him because at least in my eyes he was not being a very good husband but the mother it's definitely implied would like the husband to come back they find out that he has been having an affair with the dancer although he claims he hasn't been having an affair with her and the gossip rag spy magazine are going to print a scandalous story about this if they don't agree to let the reporters hang around at their house and report on Tracy's wedding but the father comes back and acts as though his daughter is responsible for him having affairs with younger women it's just incredibly creepy he crosses so many lines he comes back they have this discussion where he accuses her of pretending to be an untouchable goddess which all of the men seem to say at some point and then he goes on to say, oh, actually, it's your fault that I'm not a good family man and have affairs with young women. But then he also implies that all men need really young women in their lives in order to still feel youthful, which is also creepy. No, you're not owed that. That's not something that every man just deserves. And he doesn't apologize for anything that he's done he talks to her in this very high-handed manner, and it's very odd. I think with all of these older movies, you have to be aware of the fact that, oh, yes, gender politics were very different back then. I just think this one <laughs> took a left turn and suddenly went to a really weird, creepy place instead of just being run-of-the-mill sexist. Well, and I, I just I, just to throw out there, um, you know, I will say that uh, th that line about needing a, a young a young child to, to still feel young. Um, I have two kids and I've never felt more old in my life. So I truly don't <laughs> even know what that fucking line's about. Um, Ian, what do you that scene? Yeah, that scene knocked me for six, man. It was almost uh, it comes out of nowhere. It's almost kind of impressive in its uh, I don't know. It's 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 breathtakingly impressive in how unapologetic it is. Um, there's there's something there's something incestuous about it, which is like I said, I was I was blown away by it by the audacity of his character, and I'm I'm not faulting the actor at all. I mean, I th he plays it with such conviction; it's very it's very believable. You genuinely hate this guy. Um, I was trying to find like a framework for it and it, I don't want to go too political with it or anything because politics has, has nothing to do with it. But I was thinking about Trump and Ivanka on 
that that talk show where he was asked what do you and Ivanka have in common and he said sex and I was oh, like oh god. my god it's that it's that it's like that it's that level of seedy and incestuous it's he's he's like like Zeta said he's blaming his daughter for the fact that he needs to go out and have affairs and if you the subtext of that is uh he wants to fuck his daughter I I don't know I don't know how else you phrase it it's uh yeah, it's for a 1940s film. It's it's pretty audacious. It it really blew me away when I saw it because it, it's it's unlike anything else in the movie. And when you do get to the end, you do get to the marriage, and they have this reconciliation that comes out of nowhere. And she talks about feeling like a human being, and he talks about being full of love. I was like, well, hang on a second, mate. You're full of something. It's got nothing to do with love. It is a four letter word, but it's nothing to do with love. That 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 scene with the dad, it, it just added to the, the, to my befuddlement of the entire end of the movie. I I didn't understand. Like, again, and maybe maybe this is just when the time that we're living in it, and just when me what I expect from a film. But like, like why she didn't just have it out with her dad? Be like, I don't I don't I don't need your love. I don't need your approval or whatever. Like I don't know. I I just the whole end of this movie was was a. Uh, was kind of, I mean, ridiculous, but not in that fun kind of a ridiculous way. I, I just, right. I just like in a in a why is this happening to me kind of ridiculous way. I mean, and if we if we have to have it in order to get to her Catherine Hepburn being drunk with Jimmy Stewart, I don't maybe I don't I don't know if it's worth it, but their drunk scenes together are fabulous. And Jimmy Stewart playing drunk, I mean, he's a bit shouty. But his his scenes drunk with Catherine Hepburn Wait, what, and then his what, what, scene what, drunk. What are you what are you talking about? <laughs> I I can't do a Jimmy Stewart otherwise I'd join in. But I, his drunk scene, his drunk scene with Cary Grant might be my favorite thing in the movie. I, and when that, he starts hiccuping, and he's, and Cary Grant ad libs that excuse me, it floored me. I was on the floor. Well, and that's the kind of thing I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because a I think that might be my favorite scene too in terms of just the back and the forth and just just how kind of entertaining that is. But like that's what I like, we I don't know how long ago this was, but I miss I want more actors in film who have theater training because that is the kind of thing that like you you have to roll. It's just like when somebody flubs a line in a show, right? You don't get to say cut and just do it again. You have to roll with the punches. And I love I love that they just kept going, that they just kept rolling with it. And that the dynamic and and the the frivolity of those kind of scenes and, and uh, you know, Philip Barry and, and uh, Donald Ogden Stewart are not my unsung heroes, but like when, when the dialogue is crackling, it's, it is really good. I mean, I don't necessarily like the upper crustiness of it, but I do really enjoy, I think, and I do think that <laughs> I'll just say mine, my unsung hero is Ruth Hussey. Um, she gets some of the best lines and her, her delivery of them is just spot on. Well, let's stick with unsung heroes for a moment. Zeta, do you, would you offer an unsung hero of this film? I might go with Hussey too. I do think she makes some really yes. valuable contributions here and there. And I do think her character factors in interestingly when it comes to the class commentary that the play wants to make, which I got so confused about at so many points because it seems to have all of these contradictory messages going on. But the point made with her seems to be that she is an artistic soul who has sold out in order to make money, that she's very self-aware about that and she's not pretentious in the way that Mike is. 
And so we're meant to look at her positively for that. And I think she's very good at being somebody who is sarcastic, who has this desire to be with Mike, but is able to be quite quiet about it. She's never pushy. And I do think a lot of Hussey's line delivery succeeds because it never feels forced. Exactly. As much as I liked Hepburn's performance, there's definitely an artificiality to the way that she acts. And she does have all of these little poses that she does, which you see in almost all of her work, where she will tilt her chin upwards or throw her head back and laugh. And you just notice all of those things. And obviously, Hussey, a less well-known movie star, so of course her mannerisms aren't going to be as recognisable, but she definitely feels like she's experimenting at a lot of points in a way that Hepburn maybe isn't, where you feel like she has meticulously mapped out what she is going to do in every scene. And I, I think a lot of that, great point, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that she did this on Broadway. And th th there is a set in your bones kind of way that and I and I do get that there were things that were like uh where things were set the stuff at the stable stuff at the pool that you couldn't do that weren't in the play but that there's a there's got to be a point where it's she's lived in the character for so long that it does it it feels so performative it feels so I know I already know what I'm doing. There's no there's no spontaneity in it versus, you know, doing it with with Jimmy Stewart and, and Cary Grant. And I think that's, again, on the flip side, why that scene with Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart is so great is because it feels more like they're living in the moment. I, I'm I'm blown away by Ruth Hussey as well. I'm not going to choose her as my unsung hero. I'm, I'm going to do a slightly different it direction. Matter. It doesn't matter because you've you've lost. Your I've already lost. Is, it, it, yeah, yeah, it's two against okay, one. Okay, all right. Well, fair enough. Oh, I was about to say nice things about Ruth Hussey, but that's <laughs> no, just... fair. Whatever. Um, no, I, I, she was a breath of fresh air anytime she was on screen. I do, I did really appreciate her line readings. I loved the pragmatism of her character versus everybody else who seems to have their head in the clouds. Um, but I'm going to go Virginia Wheeler as my answer. Anytime Dinah was on screen, oh, she no. oh, stole the show. Wrong. Wrong. Are you kidding me? I wanted to kick her in the face. <laughs> <laughs> That's a child. Adam, I don't, that and, is a and small I, child. And I have small children. And and, and, I, and I, have you ever, dude? Okay. If well, no, you're not gonna. Have I have ne I have nieces. Listen, I, I listen, know. But if you ever like, I seriously, watching other kids around my kids, I I would kick I would kick a seven year old in the head. <laughs> and, and Dinah. And the truth comes out. Dinah was beyond irritating to me beyond irritating oh come she on she got one line right hold on i gotta find it because i want to i want to give her credit where credit goes. i can tell there's something in the air because i'm being taken away other than that fuck dinah no way none uh-uh okay well is it her or is it the script but no 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 it's 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 her i did not like i did not like i thought her. she was i thought she was wonderful i loved her little bit of piano uh, playing that she does when she comes in and she's putting on airs and she's wearing that piece of jewelry that she said sucks or was stinky or whatever it was that she said i i i thought she stole the scene oh, every man. time every every scene that she was in i was about to say that i i, I didn't know who you were going to say i was like if there's a weak link in this movie it is her no, Cary Grant is hands down the weak link. Oh, oh. All right, fine. Zita, we, I think we need you to be a moderator at this point. Okay. <laughs> I, I have to say, with, with Grant, I don't 
I don't get it with him. I don't understand what people see in terms of why he's one of the most popular leading men of all time. But the scenes that were brought up, the ones where he's with James Stewart, I thought, oh my goodness, he's so charming here in a way that I've never been enamored of him before. He's just so natural, so quick on his feet when it comes to giving off those responses. And in the scenes where he's not with James Stewart or the two of them aren't alone, I was definitely less into what he was getting up to. And again, the big issue is that he and Hepburn just don't have that romantic chemistry. It's so confusing when they end up getting together. And I think he has to compete with James Stewart in that category, who does have really strong chemistry with her. And so you're just left wanting for more at the end. And I can understand why they brought him in because he was this enormously popular star at the time. But I just wonder if they had picked somebody who seemed a bit less comfortable with Hepburn. I often felt like we're meant to believe there's this love-hate dynamic between their characters or they're great friends who really like to pester one another. And they seemed too matey to really get that dynamic across at a lot of points. That was just my feeling, but I would say this is probably my favorite Grant performance that I've ever seen. But okay, I'll, I'll resign myself to being in the minority then. But I, I will say, I, even though I don't like his performance, I do respect him enormously for he was given the choice and he took the less showy part. And then he also donated his entire salary to yeah. the British war relief effort. So but it's hugely... Uh, hugely uh, respecting of that, and uh, the character name is great. I think Jimmy Stewart, whenever he he repeats the name as often as he can, and I absolutely look because it's such a ridiculous name. That C K Dexter Haven. Um, I I don't know. I moving on to Jimmy Stewart though. I I will say, how do you guys feel when I say that he walked around his entire life with Henry Fonda's Oscar? Yeah. Oh, agree. It's true, but I mean, right. I, I, but you know what? Okay, so I'm I'm glad that came up because. I love the fact that he even knew that, right? That that there was no doubt in his mind that was like, like I, I that he I, I love in the history of the Oscars being as old as it is, which I want to come back to. Um, that even back then he knew it was like I think maybe they they th- they thought I should have won for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and so they were just like we're really sorry about that. Which yes, screwed over Henry Fonda, which you know no no good no good, but. Uh, I mean, he, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? He won. It is what it is. Well, I don't... We did Grapes of Wrath in the very first season of this show, and I, even though I don't think either of us love that movie, I think we both agreed that Henry Fonda is absolutely stunning in it. Oh. And he was also... that Up that year, he was also up against... God, who was he up against? He was up against Olivier for Rebecca and Chaplin for The Great Dictator, which are... Chaplin should have almost gotten it by default for the subject matter that he was taking on. That is a... I don't know. I know Adam hasn't seen a Bazita. Have you seen The Great Dictator? That is a monumental piece of film, in, in my mind, anyway. Oh, I have. I think I have just always been so in love with Fonda's performance that I've never really considered the other nominees. I think The Grapes of Wrath was one of the movies that really got me into classic cinema. And I remember seeing Fonda and thinking, oh, I didn't think that acting from this period could be this subtle and i didn't think they could have such control over even the 
minutest details of their performance and it's just a marvelous piece of work and i know there's a lot of genius in chaplin's performance and he does manage to blend that comedy with very intense themes very well i would say though the one thing that stops me from loving it is that speech which i don't love it's the end where it just feels like oh i've made this point through comedy i've made it in subtler ways now i'm just going to say exactly what the point of this film is and i don't love it i think he delivers it well just within the context of the film i don't think it needs to be there i i will reveal my bias and i think i revealed it to adam on the the chaplain show that we did because i watched the great dictator for our city lights episode i actually i ended up watching the great dictator on election night here in the states so i think some of my some of my my feeling might have been tainted by what a what a day that was uh the intensity that was was throughout the entire country i want to can i go on a brief just like like one one minute oscar tangent uh do it only only because i i think this is so funny so um now this was this was at a time where like there were about 10 films nominated for best picture right and and i know that we we were kind of swinging back that way now but i think about the films that were up for best picture this year you know some i liked some i didn't but all most of them really have that like oscar vibe to it now whatever that means to you is I mean, that's what it means to you. But so I watched, um, I obviously watched the Philadelphia story this week. And then I think on Wednesday I watched here comes Mr. Jordan, which is the first filmed adaptation of heaven can wait. And that film was also up for best picture. And, and I'm just thinking what a wonderful time where weird quirky comedies could actually be nominated for best picture. And you look at the shit that gets nominated now, not shit like it's bad, but like, it has to like be serious or weighty, and I like I do like a lot of the films that were up for Best Picture this year and in years past. But you know, is there no reason? Is there a reason why Palm Springs couldn't have been nominated? Like, you know what I yes. mean? Like, like, and I, like, I just the Academy Award should be indicative of of all kinds of things. Like, like if you think about the movies that we've talked about, like Re- Rebecca was nominated, and The Grapes of Wrath, and then The Philadelphia Story, like. What a what a what an awesome even just with those three like how different those are and I I don't know I just wanted to you know even though I didn't I didn't love Here Comes Mr. Jordan it was certainly fine and and interesting and and fun and I don't know I just I I yearn for the Academy to start throwing in some some nominees that are more outside of the the normal picks anyway that tangent over <laughs> yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. I do think you got a lot more variety in terms of different genres during the 30s in particular. And I do think once they went back down to five in the 1940s, that did start to wane a bit. I think they did start to return to, oh, we want a musical and then we have to have four serious movies that have a message about alcoholism or World War II or some (laughs) important subject. And it is nice that something like this earned so many nominations. And even though, yes, Fonda deserved to win, I kind of like the fact that Stuart won an Academy Award for a comedy performance instead of having it for one of the serious dramas that he appeared in. I know he wasn't nominated for the Glenn Miller story, 
but that's just definitely a piece of awards bait that could have earned him something in the 50s and I think it's nice that he won for a movie that's actually memorable instead and it is nice that he and Fonda were lifelong friends and they were besties forever so I assume there wasn't too much ill will between them over that and I believe in his AFI speech he took out a full minute to just deliver a tribute to Fonda as an actor which was very nice very touching so it seems like they were on good terms I'm gonna have to look that up well I need to just see more Jimmy Stewart films in general I mean outside of this and it's a wonderful life it's really Harvey is really my only other experience with him. Have you not seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? I have not. I, I own it. And I haven't watched it yet. Well, that's a, I mean, you, you got to see it. I mean, you got to yeah. watch it. Yeah. yeah. That's the one, that's the one he should have won for. Yeah. Is that kind of the, the vibe I'm getting? I mean, yeah, it's. Well, there is Clark Gable in Gone with the Wind there, which is another iconic all-time performance but i know a lot of people get in stewart's corner i don't know clark gable is really good and gone with the wind well you'll, you'll have to you'll have to watch miss smith goes to washington and then we can but i mean i have as i mentioned at the top of the show i have some i have some clark gable bias my my grandma brought me up with with quite a lot of his films that's true that's true so so you don't get to weigh in you're, no, you're out of no. the conversation <laughs> okay um I mean, we've talked a lot about, I mean, we've talked about quite a lot of the things that I, I, I wanted to mention, um, you know, I guess, Zita, so Zita, you've said you've, this about the fourth time you've seen it. What, what keeps you coming back to the Philadelphia story other than we asked you to be on the show and that you watched it for it? <laughs> I think it is just one of those classic comedies that comes up. It's a title that everybody is aware of. And in terms of old Hollywood stars, you don't get much bigger than Catherine Hepburn, James Stewart and Cary Grant in one film. So it's sort of hard to turn away from it because of that. I do think it's consistently engaging. It's This might sound disparaging, but it is one of those movies where it could be on TCM or something and you could come in and drift in and out and you can just sit down and individual scenes on their own will be quite entertaining it's not one where you have to sit all the way through it and follow every detail of the plot in order to have fun with it so i think that's probably why it does get a lot of airplay on television and in terms of why i keep coming back to it one of the things that fascinates me about it and i touched on it briefly is I keep trying to figure out what it wants to say about class because clearly it does have some class critique in there where I think we are meant to think at the beginning that Tracy represents the worst of the upper class and that she thinks she's a goddess. She wants to have all of this power over the men that she's with and she needs to become more human. But then at the same time, it does seem to have this message at the end where they think that people in the same social class should stick together because she does end up with C.K. Dexter Haven, who's also upper class, and not Mike, who is in a slightly lower class than she is. And then it also seems like, because of Kittredge, we're meant to have a certain disgust for gauche, nouveau, riche figures because we find out that he was 
poor and he's a sort of self-made man instead of coming from old money in the way that Tracy and C.K. Dexter Haven have, which I think is a really gross perspective. Yes, I don't really like the idea of tacky, newly wealthy people who like to lord their riches over the less fortunate, but I also don't like the idea of rich people who've done nothing to earn their money deciding to turn their noses up at another person who's basically the same as them but just happens to have gotten rich more recently than they have. I don't like the fact that the movie basically endorses that perspective. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I, I definitely agree with you on that one. I, and I think, you know, and it's it's tough because I, I think we have to imagine that Jimmy Stewart and Ruth Hussey's characters are, they're, you know, they're working class, right? They're, they're, they're just kind of doing whatever they can to get by. And I think, again, that's, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this, the story of class because, again, I think a way that this story would, I would, it would take a box that I wanted to see would be seeing Tracy and, um, and, Mike get together because there's something about what like watching those class lines dissolve a bit more but again it's 1940 it's not the story that they were trying to tell it's just I think that's the story that I that I would have liked to have seen I would echo that 100% the end of the movie for it's Mike and it's Mike and Tracy getting together it's dissolving those class barriers mm. yeah. he and there's also, oh, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. There's also something interesting about the brief period in which they, the, well, the reporters don't think that she knows that they are reporters and she decides to parade around and act like a snobby rich person in the way that she thinks that they imagine rich people are. And so they do derive quite a bit of comedy out of that. But it is an interesting in that that section serves as a critique of Mike and his perspective because he wants to pretend that he is working class and he wants to pretend that he's above the journalism that he's currently doing. But they're sort of pointing out, oh no, basically you are just as bad as all of the other gossip reporters and we know that you need to get by and earn money, but you don't get to act holier than thou when you are judging people in the way that you condemn rich people for doing. And so I thought that was a good way to tie the comedy into some social commentary. I wish it had been that sharp throughout the film. Oh, yeah, and I would echo that as well. I mean, one of my favorite lines in the film is that uh, is when Tracy and, and Mike are talking and she talks to him about, hey, you're supposed to be a writer. Aren't you supposed to leave your prejudices at the door, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but there's a, there's a wonderful line where she's talking to him about him and prejudice towards the rich, and it's the reason why I think I liked Hepburn in this so much more than bringing up Baby. I think her portrayal of somebody who's having this idea of being this wealthy snob, this goddess up in her ivory tower projected onto her, rather than than flat out acting that way, because I don't I don't feel like she. I don't feel like she is necessarily a snob. She's open to marrying a man who is, as you mentioned, nouveau riche rather than somebody like Cary Grant. Well, and then, I mean, there's so much that that's left unsaid about that relationship that she has with George that, I mean, was it really something she wanted if 
it was so easy to leave him on the do, do you know what I mean like I I just wonder how much we were meant to believe that that was going to be a relationship that was going to was going to be something yeah well I feel like maybe the writers let the characters down they didn't give the characters the room to breathe that they needed um yeah with with the rich and mighty always a little patience and uh <laughs> i don't i mean i i think it's a funny bit of dialogue but it also kind of infuriates me that that's a line that gets said in a movie yeah <laughs> absolutely um yeah i don't know i don't do, know ian what do either of you have a favorite shot I mean, I don't know that I have a favorite shot. I I I do like the way that um I do like the way that uh the 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 the, the nighttime drunk poolside argument, not argument, but uh conversation with uh Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Happen looks. I do like the way that that kind of floats and it it does feel very magical and romantic, which I know it is meant to be, but it also like it it really does. It it feels that way from the way that it looks. I like the scene or the shot where you see Mike carrying Tracy across the lawn the night after their big romantic interlude and it is very funny because you have him singing somewhere over the rainbow and she's still blissfully drunk and I just think it's a really nice moment it's depicts a level of physical and emotional intimacy that is not present in a lot of the other relationships that Tracy is allowed to have and I think she just looks so comfortable with him and in a way that she's not with the other men and it's yeah a beautifully captured moment and in terms of Hepburn not having spontaneity which is something that I criticized her for I do think in that scene her really calculated approach works just because she's able to lob those lines out so quickly and there's just this rhythm that she and Stuart have when they're delivering their lines that's perfect well, I think I think the night scenes are among some of the best in the movie it's funny I don't I don't actually own this one so I was watching this on uh, HBO Max and it's funny my stream got interrupted and I had to pause and, and buffer a little bit and it was the scene where her and Cary Grant have been at the side of the pool and he's given her uh, the model of the boat that was the boat that they had their honeymoon on. And there's a shot of her after she's gotten out of the pool and the boat is just sitting there by itself in the pool and the, the, the conversation has gone on so long that it's drifted into night and it's just her stood there in that gown before she has that terrible confrontation with her father and there's there isn't another shot in the movie that's framed like that there isn't another one that looks like that it's almost like the stream it was it was like by divine intervention or something like that that the film froze on this particular shot there's there's honestly nothing else like it in the rest of the movie it really took my breath away it's it's so funny you mentioned that scene because i i remember thinking how did it get dark so fucking fast it didn't it, it didn't i, I was it's like that that didn't happen and who who goes swimming for 30 seconds what what was that it took her longer to get ready to go into the pool than she spent in the pool ah, the, well adam well we, we'll never know when you have that much money the I fucking mean. rich that yep i got it i got it i oh sorry i i, I could not end 
this this pod without i think saying my favorite line i'd sell my grandmother for a drink and i love my grandmother <laughs> or he also asks can i have a second drink well that's between you and your grandmother <laughs> There's another one, but Uncle Willie talks about having a, a formula, a drunk, uh, a hangover remedy that'll pop the pennies off the eyes of a dead Irishman, which might not be so PC, but I it it tickled me. What do are, is it is it do do the do the Irish do they drink a lot? Is that a thing? I well, I you'd have to ask them. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, well, I I think maybe I don't know, Ian. Do you feel like we're getting to that point, the point in the show? Yeah, I, I do think so, unless Zeta has any final thoughts. Oh, no, no, no. Well, Zeta, as our guest, we're going to ask you the, the last question that we ask whenever we do one of these, which is, Zeta, do you think that the Philadelphia story should be in the book? Hmm. I'm going to go with no. Even though I have a lot of positive things to say about it, I do think that 1001 movies, that's a very limited amount of films to yes. pick. And for me, this is just a four-star film. It's not a masterpiece. I think I'd like something in the four-and-a-half to five-star range to make it into that sort of list. And I wouldn't discourage anybody from seeing this. I might even recommend it. But I do think because of some of the issues that we touched on, I can't see it as a truly great piece of cinema. Well, there you go. Is there, um, is there, do you have anything that you would replace it with? Something, that, something in that four and a half to five star range? Well, I believe the prime of Miss Jean Brody isn't on the 1001 movies list. So I'd love to see that in there. I think that's such a great literary adaptation and very controversial in a lot of ways because it does try to humanize this school teacher who is a fascist. But it's a very interesting piece of work. And I think as a metaphor for the struggle between humanism and Calvinism, it's also really interesting. I just took a look. It's not in the book. That is a perfect, that, that, that seems like a great replacement. Ian. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, do you think the Philadelphia story should be in the book? Uh, no, and for exactly as Zita just said, in my mind, it's a it's a four out of five star. I'd like so many films that we've covered on this book that I might say no to that question. I didn't regret watching the Philadelphia story. It's another one of those big classic films that I can finally check off my list. Yes. I'm going to do that thing that I, I do every once in a while on this show and uh, and say that my replacement is actually my recommend. It was Boomtown. I would absolutely put Boomtown in the book over Philadelphia Story. And this has absolutely, Eva, I know what you're both thinking, it has nothing to do with my Clark Gable bias. I did genuinely enjoy Boomtown. I mean, I laughed. I got choked up. I was genuinely enamored by the, the incredible level of special effects and montage work that happened in a film of each age. I would, I'd, I would absolutely recommend this over Philadelphia Story. Uh, well, I also don't believe that the Philadelphia story should should be in the book, although I definitely agree with both of you. I don't regret watching. And I think, you know, for people like us, like people who really enjoy 
ticking off those boxes, going through film history and watching these these movies that do live up in the minds of so many, I don't regret watching it. You know, I, I do have some some issues with plot and whatever, but I don't regret watching it. But um, I do think, and I've said this before, I do think that the book is very back-end heavy. I think the 30s, 40s, and 50s are overrepresented in the book. And so as I was, as I was looking around for a replacement, I wanted to replace it with something... Uh, you know, recent, but you know, not like recent, recent. And anyways, my my replacement. Tell, tell me you're gonna. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but tell me you're about to do something crazy like you did with bringing up baby. I believe your replacement for bringing up baby was The Hangover. Uh, <laughs> hold on, hold on. I I've got I've got the spreadsheet open right now, and I can I can tell you that my replacement on bringing up baby. Or, or there was another one. It may have been. I think you had a loose sort of uh, replacement where it'd be. I believe I'm quoting you. Anything by Judd Apatow. Is that what I said? I it's something something along those lines. Hold on. I've I've got to I've got to have it because I want to be able to. Okay, here we go. Uh, oh yeah, no, you're right. It was The Hangover. That, that, that was a that was a big swing and no. and one that I I definitely respected. No, my my swing. Oh, okay, this is great. My swing is not very big, but it's great you said swing because my replacement is a league of their own. Ooh, I like that. Wait, I only just saw that last summer. It was yeah. one of my pandemic watches, and I, I you know I really liked that a lot. I, I, Way more than I thought I was going I, to. I do too, and I I, I like. What I what I th- I think the Philadelphia story is trying to do is to put its its female character front and center. I don't know if it if it succeeds all that much, um, but I love how female focused this is. I love that it's directed by a female, and I really it, it's it is a bit overly long, but it's also like I, I it, it gets me. It's a it's a family movie. It's a it's a, a kind of overcoming your obstacles movie, and it's it's just I, I got to be real. It's a fucking baseball movie, and I played baseball for like fifteen years. And it's it, it really ticks off so many boxes and it's just charming. It's sweet. It it's more sweet and charming and it shows those working class people, which I just I don't know, I just connect to more than the upper crustiness of, of the Philadelphia story. So my replacement is a league of their own. But I gotta say, across the board, I think we got some excellent replacements for a movie that we didn't regret watching, but that we all ultimately agree shouldn't be in the book. However, that is just what the three of us think. So as always, we want to know what you think. So please find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Hit us up. Let us know what you think of the Philadelphia story. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, all those great places. Um, if you want to support the show, you can find us on Patreon.com slash 1001 by one Zeta. Would you like to tell the folks a little bit about your podcast? Oh, yes. So Ian has been a guest on this podcast, which was absolutely wonderful. It's called the 300 Passions Podcast, and we go through, similar to this podcast, a list. So it's the 300 unsuccessful nominees for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions list. So they're meant to be romantic movies. They're not always romantic, though. The selectors made some interesting decisions, and I was lucky enough to talk about The Last of the Mohicans with Ian, so that was fun. A lot of Daniel Day-Lewis talk there. And, yeah, we have a lot of different decades to work with. And as you pointed out, there is a lot of over-representation of the 30s, 40s, and 50s because that's the golden age era 
but a lot of fun movies in there. Well, that that's awesome, and and I've I've, I've definitely I try to listen to the ones of the movies I've seen, which is which is tough because a lot of those movies I I'll be honest with you I, I haven't <laughs> I haven't even heard of, but I, I have listened to a few. Um, and so yeah, you and I'm assuming they can find you on all the big platforms as well. Yes, on Anchor, that sort of thing. Yeah. Great, great. Um, and uh, and so uh, stick around next week. We are um, we are going to do a, a foreign film. I believe it is uh, uh, an Indian film, and uh, I, I know little about it. That's yeah, our our first Indian film, and we're actually doing it to uh, to coincide with what would have been the 100th birthday of that particular filmmaker. So big milestone. Exactly, exactly. So please uh, stay tuned next week for that. But until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week.